They're moving in on my turf is what they're doing. We talked about not being competitive. You better not show up I at know. a city council meeting. I know. And, uh, See, that's the thing. thing. We're all competitive at our very root. But at the end of the day, John, you know that it's it's for it's for a good cause. It's for us all to be educated. I suppose. Uh, not if it distracts away from the good work that Wedge Live does. Well, right. Of course, Wedge Live, number one, always will be um, the best news publication south of the 394, 494x. Uh, um, I have a bone to pick about you, including the Wedge in southwest Minneapolis. I know that's technically geographically correct, but... This is a real, real, real thing, real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. I have nothing else going on today. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now. 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 I'm constantly hilarious. Okay. We have nothing to worry okay. about. So how's it going? Um, it's going great. I'm actually doing great. I had, I read a lot today and you know how they say that if you stay off the internet and you do other things such as like reading books that you are less anxious and it's like better for you. Mm-hmm. It turns out that's true. Is it true? Yep. Anecdotal evidence yeah. from one day, maybe a couple hours. I, I took some time to write a blog post for the first time in a while. I saw that. I was just reading that. Um, the parking section is confusing to me. I thought that maybe we could talk about that, but it's a lot of numbers. Yeah. I don't know how to talk about parking stats in a way that's not uh, doesn't scramble your brain. What is the forty? This is a horrible way to start the podcast. Is this the beginning of the podcast? It, it will be. Yeah, it is. That's now. amazing. So sorry. Let's go. Um. Yeah, just to start it off on something really specific, when you were talking about Hennepin Avenue and the percentages of parking, uh, what does yeah. that mean? Like, what is 40% So, mean? I was talking about, so Hennepin Avenue, the street, only on-street parking on Hennepin Avenue itself is 10% of the corridor total parking if you include street parking, parking lots, uh, cross streets, uh, parking ramps. And if you want to limit it just to free, I shouldn't say free because some of it's paid in uptown, but if you want to limit it to just uh, on-street parking, then it's 40% of that total because 60% of the on-street parking comes from cross streets. I understand now. Okay. It's better communicated in a graphic which I think I think I linked to the PDF. So it's probably easy to understand as a visual. When did you start um, doing more of your work on Twitter and less blog writing? It feels like uh, maybe a 2021 thing. I just, I got so stressed out. And once I had finished like a Twitter thread or watching a meeting, it's like, this is good enough. People can get what they need from this Twitter thread. And I don't have the energy or like the mental capacity to like continue thinking about this. <laughs> so it's my own issues. 
if people are wondering why they're getting less website material and it's all on Twitter. I was just asking because... Um, uh, let's introduce the show. Oh, I'm sorry. Sure. Nobody knows who you are. It's a shame. This that is they the Wedge Life Podcast. I'm John Edwards, your host. And my guest is Melody Hoffman from Minneapolis's hottest girl group, SWV. I guess. Okay. So you welcome. Thank Melody. you, and you could hear me singing. So clearly, that is um, yeah. that was me. So Southwest Voices. Thank you, thank you so much for that introduction. <laughs> that was beyond my wildest since, dreams. Since that's a joke, only like fifty-year-old people will mm-hmm. get. We should explain that you're actually with uh, Southwest Voices, a new news outlet in Southwest Minneapolis. Yeah. What's so, your role? Um. Just to bring in um, the original SWV really quick, the only reason I applied was because I realized the initials were SWV, which was one of my favorite R&B hip hop groups of the 90s. So just to bring that full circle, um, what was the original question? What do I do there? What? What's your role with SWV? Yeah. Southwest Voices. Yeah. um, I, my, my official role, uh, my official title is founding editor, but I do much more than um, editor things. So maybe like a day in the life is I get up and I make myself a half calf cup of coffee with some almond milk in it from Costco. And then I check Slack. We use Slack. Um, but me and Charlie, so Charlie Ryback mm. is- How many people are in your Slack? <laughs> Four. There's Andrew, okay. Charlie- me and Kevin. Kevin's our secret. Um, he's like part. He's in our group, but he's secret. Like he's the invisible superhero. So he does. You just gave him away. Well, this audience is not that big, so I'm not super worried about it. Um, <laughs> plus, his name's not really Kevin. So he does all the back end, like website stuff. He makes our website look beautiful. And you know, if you're like, I wish that the Twitter. Uh, when you tweeted out something from the website that it would show a preview photo, like he's the one that does all that magic. And then Andrew does more behind the scenes stuff. Um, And then Charlie and I are basically the front facing employees of the crew. And well, I I mean, we're all front facing, but you know, we're producing like day to day, we're producing most of the journalism that you see up on our website and then on social media. And I, I started the show because it's my podcast. I started the show asking you about the Twitter thing because I've been, that's been something that I've been thinking a lot about is, is like the benefits of live tweeting meetings or live tweeting something that's going on and whether the readers actually want to see a summary or like actually see a, a for real article afterwards, or is the Twitter thing like you were saying, like, sorry that I haven't had more material up there, but I don't know if that's actually what people want um if that's actually very engaging I think some people want it yeah i also think um we can get off this soon we can we can go more general if you want but i will say that the one thing that twitter is not is that it's not a great archival place right so now that you have that blog post up on your website it's a little bit more permanent and it's able to be searched a lot easier than trying to dig through 
that Twitter thread that you did, you know, three months ago, which people... that's just a random one. But, you know, in conversation, we will always be like, did you see that? Remember when he live tweeted that? Oh, yeah. Blah. But then you can't find it. Right. And so I've gotten pretty good at, u- at using the Twitter uh, advanced search function. Oh, you can use keywords and usernames and dates. But you're right. It's it's less likely to show up in a Google search. So it's harder to find. I do like that in your blog post, you link to Twitter threads. You made it look really nice on the website too. So then that way, that's another way that you can kind of archive them and people can go back to them. Yeah. It's it's my failing, the the website, lack of content on the website. But come to Twitter. Again, would not call it's it not a failing. Too scary. I would call it a reflection of where journalism is going. It's also a fr- reflection of my mental state a lot of the time. Great. Um, how are you feeling today? I feel okay. Although the state of the world, I, I'm constantly feeling like this. I care a lot about Minneapolis. I don't feel like I don't feel like we're on a good path. I don't know. Maybe it'll just naturally get better. But I'm very stressed out about that all the time. I'm sorry. How are you? I will say that I am, I think there's an underlying anxiety. I'm heavily medicated for anxiety. So, you know, where my natural body sans medicine would be would probably be somewhere much more up there. Um, But I will say that in my short time of working with Southwest Voices, so I started in like early December and I was ramping down my work as a community college instructor and ramping this gig up. And as so I haven't been here for too long and it hasn't been my primary focus for too long. But in the short amount of time I've been here, we have gotten some really, I think, important feedback from people that say that by us just focusing on the neighborhoods and talking about the art shanty projects or even something like um something like something like the city council meetings, like there, I guess we're putting out a vibe of like positivity and hope, hopefulness. And I hope that it's not a naive approach to hopefulness. Um, but definitely like that's the vibe that we're putting out, which is strange because we're not curating it. It's not like we sit down in our editor's meeting and we're like, how are we going to spread the joy today? It's just kind of the, I think the energy right. that Charlie and I bring, especially we're very silly and goofy. Um, but also totally dedicated to helping our communities become what we're like what you said like kind of our state right now is not the best um but our focus Mm -hmm. is really on trying to talk with the community and highlight things that are going well in terms of like neighbors helping neighbors like this weekend i talked to somebody who is kind of taking on snow shoveling, like her and her neighbors are kind of getting together and they have this plan, right? So instead of complaining about the businesses that don't shovel the curb cuts, it's like, let's just go out there together and do it, right? Um, And so on my day-to-day stuff, right, John, like working on that stuff does keep me pretty positive, but that, but by being positive, it's me, it means like, okay, I'm not like sitting on the couch scrolling through Twitter or just like doing crossword puzzles all day, right? Like I'm a functioning human. Right. So that is yeah. what I mean I when I say- I suspected that about you. <laughs> what? The, which part? That you're a functioning human. Yeah, but not always guaranteed, right? Especially like 
in the last couple of years. So yeah. that is at least getting me to that point. So I guess when I'm saying like things are positive and I'm hopeful and I'm functioning, like that's, ba- I mean, that's base level. But so I think um, that's how I'm doing that because I get this opportunity to talk with neighbors that are doing th- great things that they're trying to help their communities out. That motivates me too. Um, People are craving to get back to normal, most of all. I think that would change the mood. Being able to do some of the things we used to be able to do and not not be shut in all the time, focused on violent crime and how afraid we are to be outside, whether it's the pandemic or violent crime. Hmm. What is one thing that you so wish just talking about some normal things like a, a neighborhood meeting or a little tiny project that people are excited about just being able to get outside and, and do stuff like we used to do. It's also the winter. Yeah. Comes every year. It does. But I also don't think that there's ever a normal that we're, whatever normal there was before we're not going back to that. Right. So what do you mean by I mean, normal? Do you mean like predictable or something that is so not, familiar? Uh, the status quo necessarily, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I used to go to meetings in person and see a lot of people. You don't do that as much. Used to be able to go to restaurants and see people. I know. Yeah. I know a lot of people are still doing that, but I think a lot of people are missing out on that. The no, you're right. Aspect. And I think that for me, at least. I've even erased that as a possibility. Like when we had our, we have a membership meeting with Southwest Voices. So just a side note that um, just kind of like NPR or PBS really, like if you want to be a member, you can donate monthly. Um, And part of the perks is that you get to come to a membership meeting once a month where we kind of just talk to you about how our organization is doing and ask like, what things should we focus on and kind of brainstorm story ideas. At any rate, towards the end, Charlie was mentioning like, well, maybe next month we could meet in person. And I forgot that that was even a possibility, right? Or like when I talked to my therapist and she's like, well, maybe we can meet in person in April. I was like, oh, I had just erased that. Uh, And I don't know how that impacts me mentally, but it's just kind of like, I've just, I just stopped thinking of that as a possibility because I think the summer was a big bummer, not to be a poet, but that we thought we were going to, we were there. Right. And then like just completely annihilated our, our hopes and dreams of being social creatures again. So I think I'm being a little bit more apprehensive with my hope in that regard. I'm an extreme introvert. I do well all by myself, not talking to people. And so it doesn't affect my mood in that way, but in the sense that the city is like, I also love being out in Minneapolis too. I feel like what makes what makes the city for people, it's not being stuck inside. Uh, it's being out in the world. And we're not getting that. How do you feel about people referring to you as, I, for example, I saw Wedge live at Aldi today? It's, it's a little weird. What's, what's weirder is people, there was one guy who like, not at Aldi, but some, like an intersection, pointed and said, Wedge live. And I tried to engage him in conversation. He just wouldn't engage me. He just kept walking. Like he had seen 
He had seen me. He'd pointed me out. Didn't engage with me as a human being, Mm -hmm. just an object. Mm -hmm. So that was odd. Otherwise, it's mostly positive feedback. People love me, especially at Aldi. How does it feel being an object? Because that's, you know, it's like, that's what women go through all the time. So that's weird. Glad you could get it. I feel feel bad for you women. Yeah, that's very strange. Other people are objectified too, but it is very strange to just be pointed at and commented on and then walk, you know, people just walk away. Yeah. Although my experience was just, was non-threatening and I, I can't say that I've walked in your shoes, Melody. Probably would hurt. My feet are probably smaller than yours only because I know you're taller than me. So it usually works out that way. Mm-hmm. People should know I've been mistaken for your brother. I still don't understand that. My brother is amazing. His name's John as well, but spells it J-O-N. You don't look similar at all. Um, Different demeanors. We're both white, both wear glasses. Sure, sure. But like not like when I was at the Art Shanty Projects this weekend, like I thought everybody looked like Charlie Ryback because he's got that Scandinavian like beard, knit cap look, flannel, right? Like there's lots of people. Like you and John don't have this, like you're very different. Um, Wasn't the, I just feel like you don't look similar. I think that's fair, but I can kind of see it. I can see why somebody okay. who doesn't know what they're talking about would think we look alike, but nobody is interested in the fact that I look like your brother. So we we can move on to the state of Minneapolis local journalism. You don't want to talk about how Peter Schmidt looks like you too, or no? He probably looks even less like me, though we are the same height. height. And we shouldn't talk about this. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about how white guys look the same or don't look the same and how two white people want to discuss how these white men do or do not look the same. I don't think people want to hear that. That's a good point. Let's move on. Okay. The state of Minneapolis local journalism. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Do I start? Uh, And like like and subscribe. Mm -hmm. Do that too. I would like to say something right off the bat about this. Um, As I'm new to the local journalism scene, I have been a longtime reader, subscriber, listener to uh, local news for, you know, ever since I moved here in 2009. And I will say... I wanted to make sure I said this, John, that like I have been a big fan of Wedge Live for a long time. When did you start? When did you launch? Uh, July of 2014. Okay. So that was right after I got out of grad school and I was becoming a professor. Um, And right away in my professor world, I was doing a lot of work around communication and community building. And then, you know, my journalism stuff started coming in as well when I started working at Anoka Ramsey. But I, when I was working with journalism students, um, particularly, I would, I would direct them to places like streets.mn and the stuff that Bill Lindicky does, but also the stuff that you do. um, Because I I really think it's important to highlight white men who do journalism. Just (laughs) kidding. Um, The real reason is because you are an active community member, right? Like you're, you didn't go down the traditional journalism route. And I think that's important for people to see because when I was coming up in school and I was a print journalism major, 
I my professors were great. They came from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which was like the Star Tribune, but in Milwaukee. Um, they would bring in, you know, these reporters. But but the way that traditional news works, especially back in the oh my gosh, early two thousands, is very different than how at that time what we called alternative journalism was operating, but I didn't know about it. Like nobody would show it to me. Um, I didn't have access to it. The internet was very different at that time, but I thought it was really important for students to see the work that you do because it is both community driven, you know, you're not a traditional journalist. And also this like sense about being hyper local, I think is really important. And I think that's something that is working out really well in Minneapolis and hyper local being like, I would tell my students like, yo, this is like a neighborhood. This is not even like, although he does cover all of Minneapolis, like you can focus on just a couple neighborhoods. And that really helped them see like their work at the college doing like just campus news because they're like, what if we cover the tornado? And it's like, no, no, no. What is going on in our campus? Because as you know, there's endless stories about just like a few block radius, right? There's like, there's so many stories that we could be telling. So, um, and I think you just do a wonderful job. I mean, some people were giving you crap this year because you got a little bit political about like who to vote for or whatever. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's fine. What I, you know, what I tell my students and people who are like new to this like news liter- literacy thing is like, as long as you know where they're coming from and you think about that when you're listening to their work or reading their work, then you're go- like, just know that that's where they're coming from. But besides that, I just want to say that your work and just being your your authentic self and like going to the meetings that nobody wants to go to and reporting back and being like a real human like i think that's really important journalism and i think that you've set a really good um set the stage like you know created a really nice model for other people to emulate and i think that people do whether you realize it or not but um you definitely Thank you. if if i had to write the book on local Minneapolis journalism in 2010s, 2020s, like you would definitely be a huge part of that narrative. So thanks for all your work, John. That is very gratifying. And back in the 2014, 15, 16 era, it was a lot of very hyper-local focused on neighborhood stuff. It's gotten more city focused since then, Uh, but it was a lot of like neighborhood meetings that no one else was at. Have you moved to more city-centric reporting because of the lack of coverage that you see from other publications? So what was really great about neighborhood meetings back then, it was new to me. And I think the city was grappling with a lot of new ideas. The population started growing. Uh, We started building more bike infrastructure. There's a lot of transportation and housing shocks that made neighborhood meetings really interesting to observe and be at at the time. And there's never a more fun neighborhood meeting than a bunch of inexperienced NIMBYs who've never had to react to these things before because they're, they're so honest and it's very revealing. It's, it was, I don't know. I feel like I've had a, a an education in sociology or something watching that stuff. And since then it's getting gotten kind of stale. Like people know how to be politically correct, how they should react, what kinds of messaging they should send to the city. The 
though there are some neighborhoods who haven't been through some of this stuff and it's fun to go to those meetings if we're getting the first apartment project that's been proposed in this neighborhood in 40 years or something you'll get some of those honest reactions and i've been to like edina you might get some of those reactions in edina some of those honest nimby sentiments but uh i don't know if that's why i moved away from it it's also true that the city we've kind of standardized some things since then like we take it for granted that there's no minimum parking requirement if you build an apartment building so fewer people are apt to flip out about parking to just accept it same with bike lanes to a certain extent though not on hennepin avenue exactly <laughs> we're kind of uh, having a a flashback to the the way minneapolis was a few years ago with the hennepin avenue project do you think that's fascinating because um, I was just revisiting my book and I swear to you, this is not a promo, but I wrote a book <laughs> in my previous life. I've had many previous lives like cats um, called bike lanes or white lanes. Which and I take offense at. I understand. Title. I know because you I'm are. White. I've been on a bike. They are built for you, my, my young man. Um, they, you know, I'm going to be vague about what I say here um, because I'm doing some work with a, a reporter, but there is a possibility that some of the racial dynamics that have come up in previous discussions around bike lanes um, are percolating on Hennepin. And so I want to be very careful with how Southwest voices specifically, but also how I talk about it, because there is still the issue of people of color or black owned businesses being kind of thrown around the city from, you know, for whatever reason, um, and then being put up against these really intense discussions around um, bike lanes and losing parking and, um, not to say that those two things are mutually exclusive where like businesses of like that are owned by people of color can't be pro bike lane or pro sidewalk. But I remember when I was doing work in Portland, Oregon, um, there was some real clear statements made at neighborhood meetings where the black owned businesses were like all of a sudden, because these white people are traveling through my neighborhood on bikes and they want to walk everywhere that now all of a sudden the street has to change and impact my business. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that that is like exactly what's going on in Hennepin, but I just want to leave that open for people to think about. Um, and it is very complicated because as you were writing about in your blog post, and as I've mentioned in my reporting that like the decisions around Hennepin are based on policies that the city has passed. Right. And I liked your point about like, all right, if we pass these policies, like, does that mean that we can go around them if some businesses are upset with it? Right. And I think that's a really important point, not just for Hennepin, but for any of the social justice or um, combating racism policies that they the city wants to pass. Right. Like we put some of us are like, oh, what is the point of policies? But a lot of us put a lot of weight on policies. And it's like if 
if we don't want them going around policies that are, you know, rooted in social justice and equity, then they better not be doing that with things like the Hennepin plan, right? So I just threw like a way too many things probably at you in that, but those were just some of my thoughts since you brought up the Hennepin plan. I think it's important to have policies and we just had a debate about the strong mayor system mm-hmm. and how we don't want individual council members influencing citywide decisions. We need to follow the policies. Nonpartisan staff should lead the way, professionals. And I don't know, we kind of have to set a standard for how the city operates. And that's what planning and policies are about. That's a little bit why we've moved away from the unpredictability and the, the volatile nature of politics around transportation and housing, though we are back at it, is the predictability of planning and policies. We're getting used to it. Mm-hmm. It's becoming standardized. Although Lisa Goodman would like to jump in and say, hey, no, I have the final say. So do you think, um, and again, this is another reason why hyperlocal journalism is really important because definitely the the legacy publications are not covering this at the level that you know our publications are. But do you think with the Transportation Action Plan and the 2040 plan, which if listeners aren't familiar, they're just basically two policies that basically say like the city is going to prioritize transportation plans that that um, benefit bicyclists, pedestrians, and mass transit, and basically like car drivers or drivers and vehicles are going to be kind of like at the end of the line. Do you think with those policies, as this becomes more predictable, as we, you know, as we work and redesign more streets, that businesses and the community are just going to, they're going to figure it out, just be like, yo, it's not worth you fighting about because this is like policy at this point. Or do you think there's still going to be some people trying to go around it? Because it's it's a hard argument to make that they're going to have to delay or change this redesign when they have like very intense policies behind why they're designing the street this way. I think with something like Hennepin, if it's the street out in front of your business or your home or running through your neighborhood and it's going to get reconstructed and they're going to add a bus lane and a bike lane, you're going to lose the parking mm-hmm. largely on, on the street itself. You won't lose the parking in the neighborhood uh, and in parking lots and ramps. But people get emotional about that. I don't think that will change. It might become less newsworthy. So I think that might change. I I don't know. I feel like as two organizations that cover this very closely, it almost feels textbook too, you know, and like the responses, like you could almost predict how people were going to respond to this because the business owners are always concerned about parking. There's always transit advocates, right? There's always the like the neighbor who's like kind of not really – involved but interested and then just kind of coming in as a new person being like what is this you know oh um those it always comes out that way i think what's different in the situation again is that there's city policies like usually we don't talk about that you know right it's usually project by project fight yeah you know uh people make their case no i'm right no you're right but now one side has a bunch of city policies to point to. 
And so the transportation action plan led to, so 2040 plan led to the transportation action plan. Mm -hmm. Transportation action plan led to the street design guide. These documents are forming each other and building on each other. And if you look at the city's street design guide, it shows what you should expect for a street like Hennepin Avenue. Like there's a map. And so you can, you can click on every street in the city and see what it, it would look like reconstructed under city policies. And you'll see a bus lane, you'll see a bike lane. We're entering some new territory where this is the first big street reconstruction fight that has all these policies underlying it. And so it's significant, it's significant in a president sending way. Yeah. Like, how are we going to handle this in the future? Are these policies very, very optional? Are we going to stick to them closely? It sends a message right. to staff, like uh, what kind of work they should be doing. If we start telling staff, no, you were wrong to follow these policies, then they're going to be less likely to follow in the future. And councils in the future are going to feel like it's optional, which would be a shame because they're really, from my perspective, really good policies. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, weren't weren't those policies like born in city council, like the transport action, tra- the, the yeah. transportation action plan? Like those are all like city council approved. So it's like it was your. I mean, I know it's a, a previous council, but you I know, mean, it's it's successive waves of councils. Uh, yeah, the council comes with a set of like these are our priorities, very broad. These are our priorities and goals, and gives direction to staff. It says, okay, come up with a plan. Come up with a first draft of a plan. Yeah, get some feedback on it. Come to us. Then we change it. Then it comes to council. Council modifies it any way they see fit, and then they vote to approve it. So it is done in conjunction with elected officials and policymakers. Doesn't get approved if they don't approve. Uh, what's interesting about the transportation action plan is Lisa Goodman was the only council member out of 13 to vote against it. And hmm. unfortunately now her best friend is the incoming public works director, which I keep talking about. And I don't mean that in a, like they know each other kind of way. She literally is her best friend, which makes me nervous. What power, this would be my job as a reporter, but what power does the public works director have moving forward then? In these situations, like, what are you worried about? What's your fear? I mean, the power of the public works department in this case is like, what recommendation comes forward? Who sets the baseline when it comes to counsel for a vote? Because right now the recommendation is, you know, 24-7 bus lanes, a a bike route, all these Mm -hmm. pedestrian improvements. Mm -hmm. A public works director could say, no, people who work for me. You have done the wrong thing. We're going to recommend to council that it uh, preserves the parking. And that would be the baseline that comes to city council for a vote. It's the kind of thing that Lisa Goodman pulled on Third Avenue. She oh, bullied staff. I was going to ask you uh, if there's precedent for this. Okay. Threw her weight around and they recommended, I mean, they were going to come with a 4-3 conversion on Third Avenue downtown. Staff mm-hmm. was. Lisa Goodman put an end to that. and. They, they came with a, a four-lane recommendation. So that is a real fear. Yeah. And city council is, 
very often apt to agree with staff recommendations, though not always by any means. So it's not like this is a done deal, but it's important for the city staff to to make a recommendation, and it is usually taken very seriously. I'd like to pause to um, let's talk about our mugs. So I'll talk about my mug first. This is a House on the Rock mug. Um, if anybody knows or has been to the House on the Rock from Wisconsin, that's it. If you don't know, just look it up. John, what what's up with your mug? It's a Wedge Live mug. That's so cool. You can get has on the CNN sued you yet? No. I think this okay. qualifies as parody. Absolutely. Good lesson in copyright law. What? Then the other side has the Wedge Live microphone. Do you know that you currently cannot buy a Lindale hat on Etsy right now? Oh, really? Yeah. As your merch Sometimes manager. Etsy breaks. I, I just want to let you know because I was... It. People, I have a, I didn't wear it tonight, but I have a Lindale hat, the same one that John has, just different colors. And I get compliments on it all the time. And I was trying to show somebody and it wasn't up there. So I just want to let you know that you need to restock your Lindale hats so I can get- People don't know I'm the host. I'm the managing editor, the anchor. I edit the podcast. I do the sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, I manage the store. Mm -hmm. Do all the tweets. There's a lot that you do. It is- a lot on my plate. For people, just to go back to our original conversation, I guess, which is the state of local hyper-local journalism in Minneapolis, um, something that I learned being a previous podcast host, I used to co-host this uh, podcast called Feminist Killjoys PhD with my friend Rachel. It is, I don't think people realize how exhausting it is to create content weekly, daily, a couple times a week. Like it is... It seems fun and it is fun. It's so much fun. It's rewarding. I learn a lot. It is exhausting. You know, you and know so what sometimes I hate? uh what? Booking guests. It's the bane of my existence. So first I have to decide who who's gonna be a guest, what what's top of the topic, what's interesting. I have to try to get people to come on. Most people are really nice. It's just sometimes hard to the back and forth over scheduling. Mm-hmm. That's very mm-hmm. irritating to me. Mm-hmm. It's not anyone else's fault, but my own, but I just hate it. I think you also referenced it when you were talking about live tweeting and then just not having the energy to write a blog post afterwards or an article afterwards, because it's like, it is, it's creating content is very exhausting. And I think our, with social media, our society has like understood, especially younger people <clears throat> have understood it to be this very cool thing, you know? And it, I just have to remind people, like my students got really excited about doing podcasts and then we started doing podcasts and I was like, all right, next week, what's your next? And they're like, oh, I was like, yep, you just got to keep, you want to do this? This is what they do. This is what people do every week. Again, content again, you finish the recording, you're starting again on more content and it never stops. Yeah. And then you have to deal with the fact nobody listened. Oh my God, nobody listened. We got to do it again, but nobody's listening. We got to promote this thing. I was going to say something similar, not that nobody's listening, but that it is a very one-way form of communication where you put out a ton of content, podcasting, tweets, I don't care what it is, stories, right? And you just don't hear back. Like I was thankful or grateful enough to hear some of that feedback that I was sharing earlier about people being very positive. I mean, and that is from a news organization where we are constantly asking people for feedback. We put our text number in every email we send. We're 
always, always asking for input, you know? And so even at that level, we just don't get a lot of feedback and journalists just don't unless we've done something wrong, right? Unless we've messed something up or the the public relations person from some organization is emailing you to yell at you about your reporting. Um, so we just don't get a lot of feedback and that can be really, I don't want to say demoralizing, but I will say that it getting feedback gives you so much energy to keep going that without it, I worry that we all just kind of, you know, wear ourselves down after a while. I've shut down all my comments on every platform, but uh, you could still reply to me on Twitter. Get plenty of feedback that way. Have you been building your personal, like professional Southwest Voices Twitter presence? I have. So I started a Twitter account. It's at Melody SWV, whether that SWV is for the news organization I work for or the amazing 90s, you know, whether it's for them or for the news organization, it's up to you to decide. Um, But my Twitter handle is Melody SWV. And yeah, I have set up a professional account um, because I want because I'm curating it with news organizations or yeah, news organizations, neighborhood organizations, city council people, other journalists, right? I want to have a pretty streamlined Twitter thing because it's very, it is part of the job and it's very confusing going on to my personal Twitter and like having to like be doing work, but like in a very non-work environment. So I've kind of set up my own stream. Um, it is also very difficult to uh, manage multiple Twitter accounts. Uh, both Charlie and I have, I hope it's okay that I'm saying this, Charlie. We have accidentally retweeted stuff from like the Southwest Voices account that we meant to retweet on our personal page. And it wasn't anything like obnoxious. It was just like uh, a journalist probably wouldn't retweet that. So that's weird. Right. Um, so Twitter's really messy. But yeah, I do have my own account. I love it. I love live tweeting. I've like, you know, been watching you live tweet for so long that like when I got my first city council thing where I could like live tweet, it's like, oh my God, it's amazing. And I'll hate it. I'm sure I'll be so sick of it like later, but it's, I'm very much in the like, this is so cool. I'm live tweeting a city council meeting, you guys, hashtag yeah. city council, you know. After watching the Wedge Live Masterclass. <laughs> Dude. I was in the front row as a student all of these years, John. You have no idea. I was going to talk about the collaboration thing that's going on right now. Okay. Drop it on me. What was that look? What was that look? <laughs> if that's you're right. I don't I know. Mean, that's, that's where I'm going to take it. Famous for my, uh, my facial gestures on YouTube. I'm famous for my YouTube facial gestures. You should be watching the show on YouTube. The plug. Go ahead. Collaboration. I have noticed this is something that I really am liking about the culture of journalism. I will say here in Minneapolis, and I hope that it's happening other places. Um, we could take, you know, if we want to do a deep dive on the state of hyperlocal journalism in our nation, we can do that. But on a positive note, it has been amazing to see competition kind of be put in the back seat and us working together as the primary motivator. Like for example, before I joined Southwest voices, there was somebody, I think it was min post. Remember that amazing article about somebody who rode along with the guys or the people that cruise in cars like the, and they do the, 
the sorry i'm being a white lady right now this donut circles they do the i don't think i read that somebody wrote along with the uh the yeah the you know what people? i'm talking about right the sideshow yeah. culture yeah. is what you said yeah yeah um and I saw multiple local news organizations reposting it, being like, read this, read this. And that is that was unheard of. Like, I, I don't want to put a time marker. I want to say five years. I mean, it was unheard of maybe a couple of years ago that you would willingly link to your competitor's news organization and ask your readers or listeners to go to them, right? That would not, it just didn't happen. And I'm still kind of theorizing about why it's happening now. But it really does bring me a lot of joy that like, you know, Wedge Live and Southwest Voices, we cover a very similar area and we do similar things, but we're not in like, sure, I guess technically we're in competition with each other if you want to use the like traditional words, but we don't, we don't communicate competitively. Like we boost each other's work. We retweet each other's stuff. If you cover something, we reference it. We don't act like there's other news organizations that haven't already done this reporting. And I really like it. Like, of course, because we live in a hyper-capitalistic and white supremacist society, like, I'm sure there's some way where this is going to get exploited, right? But right now, do I love seeing NPR and Sahan Journal working together? Yeah, I do. Like, do I like seeing Sahan journalists working with TPT, um, Minnesota spokesman recorded, like them all working together? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's bringing more attention to places like Sahan and the spokesman recorder who's been around forever. I mean, some of the black publications, news publications up in North are like legacy, legacy, legacy publications. And if you're not familiar with the legacy of black journalism, please pause or just stop listening to me and start reading about it because it's very important. Um, But I really like seeing that, Um, especially when it's news publications like NPR that have a lot of, um, for lack of better terms, street cred, you know, that are credible news organizations um, that are collaborating because they will be the first ones that will stay competitive and they won't acknowledge the smaller organizations, right? Right. So that's been something that I've been observing and just loving um, being able to work with reporters that work with other publications and nobody's saying like, oh, no, sorry, I can't because I can only work. It's like we're in it together. And I think it might be a survival. You know, again, I'm theorizing about it. it might be a survival mode thing that we're all in. But I also think that we genuinely I'll speak for myself. I genuinely respect the heck out of all of these publications and the fact that I'm able to uplift them and link to them and tell my readers about them is really awesome. It's a really great part of the job. The thing is, there's so much news to go around. There's too much news. Couldn't possibly cover it all yourself. There's no reason to be protective of it. I like that. I think. And yet we have been, though. The industry is operated as if they can, that a publication can. I mean, maybe if you're the Star Tribune, you have the resources to cover it all, but I I personally don't. And yet they don't cover it all. Right. You want to talk about crime? I'd love to. In a different, yes, let's talk about crime. Southwest Voices approach to covering crime. I would love to. What's your approach? Oh, my approach? We can kick it off by talking about my approach. Please. So as as it became clear that violent crime was on the upswing, like, do you become 
as as Wedge Live? Do I become like a crime blotter, just posting every notification I get on Citizen? Hey guys, uh, robbery at gunpoint in Lynn Lake. Mm-hmm. Somebody shot off a gun in Whittier. Mm-hmm. That that would get old, and would probably not bring anything to the conversation. If you want that, you can subscribe to like MN Crime on Twitter or something. But not mm-hmm. what's what's the racist Twitter uh, uh, crime thing? Is that like uh, Crime Watch Minneapolis or something? I don't want to besmirch anyone's uh, crime Twitter, but there's a there's a bad one. I would say that a lot of to your point though, a lot of the social media accounts or next door posts or whatever that focus on just reposting crime have a high likelihood that there's going to be some racism and classism embedded in that. Why that is, I do not know because it it doesn't go hand in hand necessarily, but those comments come right along with reporting every single incident that happens in a neighborhood. And so I focus personally in 2021 on the, uh, the public safety stuff, the charter amendment, the violence prevention stuff, the the policy stuff happening at the city council. And, you know, for my own mental well-being, just uh, I don't cover crime. I have chosen. I acknowledge that uh, violent crime is trending uh, sharply and concerningly upward uh, nationally and in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. But I, I try to focus more on policy. I think it keeps me healthier. I think it might be more productive. Certainly people are aware of it. I'm not hiding it from anyone. But what what is the Southwest Voices approach to that? Yeah. So another reason it's such an honor to work with Southwest Voices is because even before I came in with my very, I have strong opinions about how to cover crime and not cover it. um, Charlie said very clearly to me, we don't cover crime. We're not. I don't. Um, and this is something that even if we get feedback and people say, I want you to cover every single thing that happens that comes through Citizen, our our response is there you can be on Citizen. You can follow on Nextdoor or you can follow these Twitter accounts. We're not going to be doing that because that's already kind of been taken, you know, that's done. But also, even if it wasn't covered at such a high rate, we're not interested in that because that doesn't get us to a better place, right? Like you focusing on the policies, for example, or the Office of Violence Prevention, like those are what we would define as solutions. And so we wrote a short editorial about this on our website. Um, but just to to summarize it, and again, this is not just me, this is Charlie and Andrew, you know, before I even showed up, they had this and, and it's just, uh, Like it is amazing that we are all on the same page about this. So this is really, truly how we all feel that um, we want to focus on what is called solutions oriented journalism, which if you're not familiar with it, again, I would look it up. It is it's a fascinating form of journalism where the reporting is about what are the communities doing to solve whatever issue is going on in their in their Area. So it could be people going through homelessness. It could be poverty. Um, it could be violent crime, right? What are they doing? Um, are they meeting with young kids? Are they um, uh, organizing a, a soup night, right? Like, but, but focusing on that um, and also policy stuff too. I would add 
um, as I've said a couple times publicly, that we're also approaching it from a very empathetic standpoint. Um, and I will reference Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, who is like a huge uh, role model for me in that like the goal is to get to know our neighbors um, and that in- that includes everybody, right? And so if there are people in our neighborhood that are choosing criminal behavior, our questions are why? Like what is like what is going on, right? Um, what is going on in their home life? What is happening at schools? What it, you know, what is going on in our society where people are choosing this behavior? Um, if this is a new concept to you, especially if you're a white person, middle, upper class, and you've ever seen The Wire. John, have you ever seen The Wire? I have seen The Wire. Okay. So you'll get this. This show, one thing that, you know, one reason why that show was so critically acclaimed was because they did something that media rarely does, which is that they humanized drug dealers. They humanized young kids that were um, uh, engaging in violent criminal behavior, right? And so when you would watch that show, you would be devastated if the kid who just carjacked somebody got shot, right? Um, or you would be devastated if the drug dealer died because you realize that they were more than just that. And I think the news media, our local news media included, does a huge disservice to our communities by focusing on the violent crime this, the violent crime that, it happened on the street, it happened on that street, this is how old they were. Oh, look at there's a bunch of young kids getting arrested. Oh, okay, great. Now, now we are going to be stereotyping all these young kids um, because they're all criminals, right? Um, and that's just not that's not our deal. That's not what we do at Southwest Voices. Instead, we pause and we're like, all right, let's go talk to people who work with these kids and let's hear what they have to say, right? And when you do that, you realize there's a whole other situation going on that has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do. Um, it seems callous to say like it has nothing to do with, with your safety or whatever, but like it's, it's, uh, as somebody who's living in South could get my car stolen at any, any point, whatever is going on in that person's life who chooses that to chooses to rumble through my car or rumble, rustle through my car, take my phone charger, whatever, take my blanket. Like there's something going on in their life. Right. And to me, that matters more to me to kind of like understand what that person's going through than the fact that my phone charger got stolen. Right. Um, and I know that that, that is not, um, that is not meant to discredit anybody who had, had gone through a violent carjacking or a violent robbery. Like those, those are still, we take that seriously. It's not, we're like, ah, another carjacking, what, you know, whatever. Um, we take that very seriously, but we think in terms of, you know, making our, to see less crime in our communities, we want to help that along by trying to f- truly empathetically understand what is happening in our society, where those are the d- choices that are being made by particular people. Something is happening across our country. Uh, some of the the children who are engaging in these very violent activities like it's astonishing how young they are. Mm-hmm. It's like something is breaking mm-hmm. in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying it just started, but like the the very extreme conditions of the last two years is affecting our society. Mm-hmm. So making it very clear there are root causes to violence. Like they they can be made worse. 
which we've seen over the last two years, which mm-hmm. also means we can make them better. Uh, it's like, I, I feel very sad for people I see who are victims of crime. I, and like it's, and I also can acknowledge that there are ways we could be addressing the problem that would make it better. It isn't always sending an armed police officer. Cause if you haven't noticed, they all, I mean, hundreds of them decided to pick up and leave. They're not here and we won't be replacing them for a couple of years. So we, we ought to be trying to figure out a way how to like reconstitute and make better the way our society, the way our city functions and it is more equitable addressing some of these, these underlying issues of poverty because a poverty map is, is a map of gun violence. Mm-hmm. So I also, um, I don't know when this is going to come out, but we're recording it on Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And as you were talking, I was, I was, and I've been thinking all day, you know, about the history of the civil rights movement, but specifically about the Black Panthers um, and things like the community breakfasts that they would put together. And and what I really appreciate about learning that history is that it was very community driven and that it was about the communities taking care of themselves when the systems were not interested in taking care of them, right? And I'm not trying to claim that that is what the city of Minneapolis is doing right now. I'm just saying that there's no need to also reinvent the wheel that I think that part of the, our reporting is doing research into what has helped and worked in other places. And it doesn't have to be just in the last two years. Um, what happens when communities are in crisis and how do they respond? And oftentimes um, they will respond by working very closely together because yeah, you're right. This, the police officers are not coming and, and it, it disappoints people who truly support the police. And they're like, hello, hello, can somebody come? I support you. Please help me. And they're short-staffed or whatever the reason is, they they don't show up, right? And so even if we were all like MPD, yay, 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 we want you here, there's just not enough staff, right? So then what do we do? And thankfully, it dovetails really nicely in with people who have been thinking about this for a really long time and have ideas and have been trying to put them forth. So I'm thinking about like mental health responders, right? Um, And it's also not a very hard argument to make in that, you know, I talked with a a woman who lived in um, the rural Midwest and and she was um, unfortunately a victim of domestic violence. And when I was trying to explain to her what we were talking about in Minneapolis, I was like, you know, so for domestic violence, like it would be nice to like have a domestic violence specialist with, right? Somebody who doesn't have a gun, just going to show up and kind of be your advocate. And she was like, oh my gosh. And then told me this you know, how the police treated her when she would call, right? And this is a rural white woman um, that is supportive of the police, but even she had a negative uh, experience and wanted something different, right? So I think we're also at this really amazing moment where because of the lack of uh, staff in the police department and community members having some really great ideas on how to work around the lack of staff, you know, some really cool things could happen in our city. I'm really excited to see what that is. Is Southwest Voices going to cover education issues? Are you filling that gap? Yes. I feel like thank, that's a gap. Thank you so much for bringing that up. 
I could talk for a long time about our reporter, Melissa Whitler. She is a Milwaukee public. I said this the other day, Minneapolis. I'm from Milwaukee. Same initials. Um, Minneapolis public school. uh, She's a, a public school parent. And she, do you know Melissa? I think I met her once in, at a neighborhood meeting in Ward 13. If she, if she is who I think she is, because I know her mostly on Twitter and she doesn't use well, her real name. Yeah, right, right, right. So Melissa Lie has, before we existed as an organization, has been live tweeting school board meetings because nobody covers it. Nobody. No, like, there's no coverage. It would and, be a painful existence. Those meetings are extremely long and... Oh it's it's I know we're just two a to horrible five investment of time. And yet really important things are discussed at those meetings and really important decisions are made. Um, and, you know, this used to be a beat for reporters, you know, like the Star Tribune, like it's a beat. You're an educator, re- education reporter. Um, and so it's, it's about also the resources, right, that or the choices to not send reporters. Um, so right now we do have, uh, for a better, you know, a, a beat reporter that I think what is so important understands the public school system to agree that I will never understand that Charlie, you know, that we will just never understand because she's invested so much time into it. And so, yeah, she, um, she's, she has started by covering the school board meetings and kind of doing what what we were talking about earlier where she would live tweet them and then write these very detailed summaries about what happened afterwards. Um, but then she's also branching out and we're also branching out into things like um, talking with parents and kids about what it's like to be doing this like online learning and then back to school and online learning, right? Um, doing things like that. Also, um, we are in the works. I personally, because of my background as a newspaper advisor at a community college, I've been working with a local high school and there, and we're trying to get some communication going um, so I can work with that newspaper at, the, at a specific high school and then work with them in terms of doing some school reporting as well. So I'm really excited about that. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention through the school reporting is uh, documenters which is a large organization. Do you know about, do you want to explain what, are you familiar, John? You can explain. You'd probably be better explaining it than oh. me, but I, I am aware. Yeah. So it, the documenters, you can go to documenters.org, I think is the website. Um, feel free to uh, fact check me on that, John. But um, they have branches in, in numerous cities. They just officially launched one here. And what they do is they train people like me, John, Melissa, you listening, if you're interested, on how to take mi- how to take notes uh, uh, during public meetings. And you get trained. They have a very specific way of taking notes. It seems very like it's it's a great way. It's there's no hidden agenda. And then you post. They have a you know a way to do this online where you post the notes publicly, right? And so basically, what's going to end up happening is that the 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 dream or the hope, the plan is to get enough people in Minneapolis trained that it gets, you know, the work gets fanned out where people, I should know, you're paid to do this, that somebody does attend that like minuscule city council committee meeting, right? And takes notes. Because as I mentioned earlier, 
It's too much for one person to do. They're exhausting. Who knows how long they go? But I think the Wedge Live, your reporting has shown that like at these committee meetings, some really serious things can be decided, can be said. Um, and so through documenters, this is another you know way to get not only to have people eyes right on all of these meetings, but also to produce publicly available notes that are written in a way that are easy to understand too. They're not full of jargon, which I think is a beautiful part of that training. They're moving in on my turf is what they're doing. We talked about not being competitive. You better not show up at a city council meeting. I know. And, uh, See, that's the thing. thing. We're all competitive at our very root. But at the end of the day, John, you know that it's it's for it's for a good cause. It's for us all to be educated. I suppose. Uh, not if it distracts away from the good work that Wedge Live does. Well, right. Of course, Wedge Live, number one, always will be um, the best news publication south of the 394, 494. Uh, um, I have a bone um, to pick about you, including the Wedge in southwest Minneapolis. I know that's technically geographically correct, but. Let me just say this. There's perceptions about what Southwest is. Our organization is defining Southwest as the Southwest quadrant of Minneapolis. So if you look at the map of Minneapolis, it is divided by freeways, which is great uh, sarcasm. So we go all the way east to 35W and then all the way north to 394. So Lowry Hill, Kenwood, Whittier, Stevens Square, that's our northern boundary. Bryn Mawr, shout out to Bryn Mawr if you're listening, they have contacted us because technically the Southwest Journal defined them as Southwest. We do not include them in Southwest oh, because quadrant wise, well, because using the quadrant, they're north of 394. Aren't they split by it? Isn't part of it south of 394? Technically, but like a... Like, it's so minuscule. Here's the thing. I'm saying this is Melody. I'm not representing anybody when I say this. I used to live in near North. I'm very proud to have spent time in North. Um, there are a lot of people that are very proud to be in North. When I hear ab about people, places, things that are in North that are asking to not be identified as being in North, it bothers me personally. It does not bother Southwest voices. I'm saying that is me. So it's Bryn Mawr that you're talking about that is is trying not to be considered North Minneapolis. Yes, but I think like things like my neighborhood that I was in was called near North, right? It's just like North Minneapolis. Like what is the problem, right? Uh, racism is the problem. Um, interesting, I have an interesting story on this on the topic of Bryn Mawr and like what is North and South Minneapolis. So I have a friend who was involved in like organizing the 2017 Ward 7 DFL convention. Mm -hmm. Bryn Mawr is one of the neighborhoods in Ward 7. Mm -hmm. So Ward 7 stretches from like Loring Park, down uh, parts of downtown, Elliott Park, all the way mm -hmm. to Cedar Alsdeen, uh, to the to the west of Lake of the Isles, mm -hmm. Kenwood, East Isles, La mm -hmm. uh, Lowry Hill, and Bryn Mawr. And so in organizing this convention, uh, Margaret Anderson Kelleher, who is Lisa Goodman's best friend and incoming public works director, uh, call mm -hmm. back to that, 
was also involved in organizing this convention. And they're trying to decide where, where do we put it? Is it going to be in the elementary school in Bryn Mawr? Or will it be in a more accessible location, like in Loring Park, maybe mm, someplace mm-hmm. along Hennepin Avenue, someplace you can get to safely if you're walking, biking, taking transit? Because it is legitimately difficult and sometimes very unsafe to to get to Bryn Mawr from a transportation perspective. Mm-hmm. And so Margaret Anderson Kelleher Absolutely. accused my friend of being racist for implying it was unsafe to uh, travel to Bryn Mawr, uh, suggesting that it was about the the fact that Bryn Mawr is in North Minneapolis, as if this person was afraid to come to North Minneapolis, which was not the underlying issue. I'm not sure. I wasn't there. I can't say. But I can't understand if uh, Margaret Anderson Kelleher is just like that much of a weirdo, like didn't get that this was a transportation commentary and not like a racial, like, did she think someone was actually afraid to come to Bryn Mawr? Uh, It's just a weird Margaret Anderson Kelleher story. Who yeah, is again our incoming public works director? I don't know enough about that person or the discussion that took place to make a comment on that. I would guess that um, Bryn Mawr is in a really sticky spot. And I think anytime, I mean, as a PR, you know, speaking as like somebody who knows a lot about public relations, like anytime you can make your neighborhood look good is great, right? So it's like, oh, you don't want to come to, uh, like, what's wrong with you? You know, and so you put it on them, right? Um, I don't know. Hey, you don't want to come to our is, white neighborhood? Are you can racist? We, yeah, like, this would be like an entirely, <laughs> this is like a whole other episode, which is amazing. Um, and I definitely did not do enough research about Bryn Mawr to talk about all this. But I will say I did fact check myself. Bryn Mawr is squarely north of 394. Uh, everything is 394. So, oh my gosh <laughs> oh my gosh yes because when you go up I'm yes I mean do you doubt is there a part of Bryn Mawr that I, you think I'm lying about so because I don't he, have a car I don't drive I don't understand interstates because the other side is um behind the walker like when i i used to bike and drive there, up- there are parts of Bryn Mawr that border uh cedar lake so it's you're right that it's probably not most of the neighborhood but i see that little okay that little if you part google is it you will see the borders i see it but like it's basically kenwood probably I'm really familiar with that area because I biked. I did not own a car when I would go up there a lot. And so I was biking and busting up there constantly. And it is a separate area. Like it is just not, it is clearly cut off from the rest of Southwest, right? If they are considered, I mean, like it is clearly North. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. Um, I'm, you would have to bring on a geographer like Bill Lindeke to talk about this because I don't, at any rate- um, I wanted to clarify that Southwest, it is the whole Southwest quadrant. So if you're, I don't know, it reminds me of Portland, Oregon, where it's organized by quadrants. So you're like in North Portland, Northeast Portland, right? Um, that is kind of the approach we're taking. So then everything South or everything East of 35W, like Powderhorn and, uh, 
um, other, sorry, all the other neighborhoods that are over there. That's, that's, that would be like the Southeast quadrant, but I think we, we colloquially call it South, South Minneapolis. Do you have any other topics you would like to cover? Cause I think we're coming to the end. Um, I wanted to thank you for allowing Taylor to cover Mickey Moore. I think that was another great thing that you did. And I'm, it's too bad that you still find it to be not worth your time because I think it is worth our time. And that's something that's really tricky about local journalism is figuring out what is interesting or feel important to us versus like what is better for the greater good and for the greater community. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to talk about some stupid, stupid stuff. That's not important at all. I'm willing to delve into the trivial. It's just, it felt uh, Mickey Moore as a topic, just, it feels, uh, maybe denigrating, you're denigrating yourself and your city and shame on the star tribune forever endorsing him when it was obvious he was a scam artist, but uh, that he is a serious was a serious figure taken seriously it's deeply embarrassing for the city and anyone who utters his name but that's more I how it. i felt about it john i get it because it reminds me when you're just talking about that i just started thinking about donald trump because yeah. he again was somebody that the journalists don't want to cover and we didn't cover him right we're just like he's a joke he's a joke he's a joke and then all of a sudden he's president right and so like that's the unfortunate thing is that if we don't keep an eye on these things where we just want to roll our eyes and be like, really, y'all are taking them seriously. Like before you know it, you have a Donald Trump in office and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I'm like, honestly, that is what happened. Right. And so there is the difference. The difference with Trump and Mickey Moore is that there are a lot of people who validated Mickey Moore and Mickey Moore is not some magnetic personality, some master of social media who was bound to get attention. Star Tribune made a conscious decision to endorse this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Hoke made a conscious decision. Don Samuels, a bunch of institutional figures decided mm-hmm. that they were going to get behind him and ask people to take him seriously. Lucky, Luckily, he was such a ridiculous figure that that didn't work. But yeah, th- that's the difference I see with Trump. Like Mickey Moore is not some powerhouse, uh, obviously. Oh, well, I don't but, think Donald Trump was a powerhouse either, but we can talk about that later. Okay. We we'll talk about that episode, off we'll, we'll, and we'll become closing, a national politics podcast. I know that everybody's waiting to hear my take on Burger King. I would like to say that Burger King should not have drive-throughs in the city. I love that there isn't. Um, wh- but I would also like to share, um, as a f- you know vegan, vegetarian, depending on the day, um, I do have a soft spot for the breakfast croissant, which, which just is egg and cheese as a kid, I would get it with bacon and, but like the, the paper, the paper cartons of orange juice really bring back a lot of memories for me. So that's, I know that that was important for me to, um, I just wanted to state my position on Burger King. Thank you. We, we had been teasing, uh, a future Burger King episode. It's, it's going to be a big issue in February, Burger King on, uh, I think 34th and Nicolette is trying to reopen their drive through and it, it's been the subject of a lawsuit. We did a whole episode on this, so I won't spoil it, but look for that in the future. Already recorded. Melody, I think this episode will come out this week, so it'll be very topical. Everything will be fresh. We won't be stale. I was just thinking about that Burger King because that is when, oh my gosh, I think it was when Michael Brown was murdered and we took over the freeway, 35W South. 
that was, oh God, that's the sad part about this. But um, I remember that distinctly. And we met at that Burger King. Hmm. I still don't think they should have a drive through though. Because well, you know why? why? You see what happens in St. Paul with the Starbucks over there that has a drive through and all the cars are pouring out onto the street. It is so dangerous. It's, and I haven't walked by the 24th so and, and Nicolet drive through in a while, but the, the times that I have during the last year or two, uh, cars have been backed up onto the street, which was not a thing I had seen commonly before. So it's, it's also extremely inaccessible. Like they will not, I don't know how it is here, but I, as somebody who doesn't always have a car, I was denied food one night because I didn't have a car. Like they would not serve me for safety purposes. Right. So it ends up being really inaccessible too and very um, discriminatory against people. The interesting thing about the McDonald's at 24th and Nicolette is they have a walk-up window. That's nice. On the Nicolette side. Good. They got a, like a plaza area and a and a walk-up window. Well, I'm glad that McDonald's of all corporations is with it. A friend, friend to pedestrians everywhere, McDonald's. Are we ready to close it out? Yep. I get so oh. been the wedge live podcast my name is john edwards and my guest has been melody hoffman of swv this is a real real thing real 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 thing neighborhood right now 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 right